0: Only then that which is nameless comes into being.
1: This is Urgency of Change, the Krishnamurti podcast. The crisis is not in economics, politics, or religion, the crisis is in our consciousness. Hello and welcome to episode 131 of Urgency of Change. Season 3 of the Krishnamurti podcast continues with the format of carefully chosen extracts from the Philosopher's Talks. Each weekly episode focuses on a theme explored by Krishnamurti, and the aim is to represent his different approaches to these universal topics. This week's theme is Crisis – Upcoming themes are light, struggle and nothingness. This is a podcast from Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. Please visit our official YouTube channels for hundreds of advert-free video and audio recordings of Krishnamurti's talks and clips. You can also find our daily quotes and videos on Instagram and Facebook at Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, which helps its visibility. This week's episode on Crisis has four sections. The first extract is from Krishnamurti's second talk in Ojai 1985, titled Where is the Crisis? It's a nice,
0: not-too-hot a morning, pleasant under the trees, under rather cool breeze, which, you have, which one hopes you will not mind. And it is rather convenient to go to sleep here. <laughs> well covered with blankets and all the rest of it, nice Sunday morning, free of all the office work and labour and travail and skill, and under the trees and the dappled light, it's rather pleasant. You can go on talking, but it doesn't matter. So now I'll go to sleep and you go on. <laughs> If that is what you want, go to sleep. But if we are serious, earnest which we must be because this is one of the crises we have come to. It's no longer mere entertainment. No longer mere intellectual game, or seeking sensation from one thing to another, or from another. We have got to face some extraordinary crisis in life. Life being our consciousness, crisis is not in economics, political, religious, but the crisis is in our consciousness. Why? We are what we are of thousands and thousands of years. That is where the crisis is. And merely to All the economic crisis, or the political crisis, or the the brutality of ideologies and wars. It's not only there, but much deeper. So we're going to inquire first, because they're all related, all problems are related to each other they are not separate. If one can solve one problem completely, then you have solved all other problems. Because there is no separate problem. Whether it be sexual, whether it be the desire to fulfil, and so on. So, in the resolution of one, you solve the whole thing, if you know how to do it.
1: The second extract is from the fourth talk in Ojai, 1981, titled The crisis must be answered.
0: We've been saying that the world is in a crisis threatened by war overpopulation poverty terrible division between nationalities and all the absurdities that are going the, going on in the name of religion but the crisis as we said is in the human consciousness in the mind in the brain in the heart which cannot possibly be solved by politicians or by the accumulated knowledge of the scientists, nor is it an economic problem. But it's become a dangerously human problem. And apparently, very few, are inclined or interested to concern themselves with that crisis in the human mind. And, if you are at all serious, and I hope we are, we must be concerned with the responsibility of all that is taking place in the world. Because, as we explained quite often, that our consciousness is not the particular consciousness of one person, it's the consciousness of all mankind, because all human beings suffer, wherever they live, they are in conflict, misery, confusion, searching out leaders who are always betraying them, depending on priests who give them a lot of words and meaningless answers, No. Can one depend on the scientists who, with their specialization, are helping to destroy the world? And as this crisis is in ourselves and nowhere else, and so the responsibility, as we pointed out, becomes very great and very serious. And whether This consciousness, with which we have lived for a million years, can never be transformed, there are some who say it cannot. Human nature is what it is. Modify it, accept it, slightly change it. But, fundamentally, it cannot possibly be changed. And if one accepts what the philosophers and those who think in that manner, then man, human being, must suffer endlessly, must remain in conflict, everlasting. There must be wars, endlessly, as they have been for the last five thousand years in history, in history, recorded history, practically a war somewhere in this, on this earth, which is our earth, where we are meant to live, not. American earth, or the English earth, or the Indian, or the Japanese, and so on. And whether that consciousness in which there is this crisis must be answered, not by any particular specialist, professional, but by us, ordinary, everyday living human beings with their jobs, with their miseries, confusion. One must have patience to listen to ourselves, because now we are depending on all the specialists, the professors, those who tell you what to do. We have lost self-reliance. We have become more or less slaves to authority, whether it is scientific authority, Religious or economic or environmental authority. We are losing all over the world our sense of integrity. We are depending on books. Books have their place, but To understand ourselves through books, through another, has led us to this confusion, to this crisis. And, as we pointed out over and over again, that we are thinking, reasoning, observing together. We are not accepting what the speaker is saying, or rejecting. It is merely acting as a mirror in which we see ourselves. And when we begin to see ourselves as we are, then we can throw away, break up the mirror. The mirror has no value. So, we are saying that the crisis is in our minds and our hearts, and we don't seem to be able to understand that crisis. Understanding brings its own discipline. not the discipline of conformity, not the discipline of imitation, not the discipline to accept something, however great or small. Discipline means, to look, word, the root word of that word, discipline comes from the word disciple, Disciple is one who learns not from another, however wise, however enlightened, however knowledgeable, but learning from our own self education. Learning. About ourselves, because there is our crisis. We have handed ourselves over to the priests, to the scholars, to the professors, to the philosophers, and to the analysts, and unfortunately, recently, to the over-handed ourselves over to some gurus from India or Asia. Which is most unfortunate. They have become rich, exploiting people. It's become a great religion as it is now, it's become a great business affair, which again is obvious. So, we are saying that one has to observe oneself. learn about oneself, not from anybody, because they are not themselves studying themselves. They have theories, some speculative ideas which they have experimented on, animals, pigeons and so on, but they have never looked at themselves actually as they are, with their greed, with their ambition, with their competition, with their aggressiveness, violence and so on. All that we are. And in the understanding of that, actually understanding, not merely the verbal description of what we are, but the actual understanding of our reactions, our thoughts, our anger, our wounds, our aggressiveness, violence and so on, looking at it. Therefore, out of that understanding, observation, comes this discipline which is constantly learning and new. Perhaps in this country we have lost that meaning of that word discipline. We have relegated to the soldier, to some monks and so on. we are In this country, especially, we have lost the meaning of that word. If you are a careerist, in that career there is a certain demand for discipline. If you are a carpenter, the very understanding of the wood, the tools, the nature of design, That observation, that understanding brings its own learning, its own discipline, its own action. But apparently, we have lost that. Because we're all so terribly concerned to get on, to climb the ladder of success, to become something. If you observe, all this. And so, therefore, we're becoming more and more and more superficial. We have got a marvelous country, one of the most beautiful countries in the world. From the high snow capped mountains to the desert, to the vast rivers, and the deep valleys, and the great trees. It's a marvelous country. And we human beings are destroying all that because we want to get on, God knows where, but get on. Which means we are observing all this ourselves, please you are not following the speaker, the speaker is not your guru, your leader, you are not his followers, one has to wipe away all that and examine closely what we are doing as human beings. And in this consciousness, there is disorder, and we are trying to bring order in that by conformity, by acceptance, obedience. We have never understood what is order. And, as the speaker has been in this country for the last sixty years, I've seen every kind of phase, fad, something always new. And we we live practically, socially, morally, ethically, in disorder. And without understanding order, in the deepest sense of that word, meditation becomes utterly meaningless. We think that through meditation we'll bring order. That's the trick that has been played upon us for a million years. But order begins at home, near. So we have to investigate together what is that order. Because our consciousness, as we said, is in total disarray. It's in conflict. which is battling itself against something which it has created. So we are together going to inquire what is order. We are using that word to imply a state of mind, not as an ideal, a state of mind, a state of heart, in which there is no conflict whatsoever. Conflict indicates disorder, choice indicates disorder. A man who chooses is really not actually free, he is confused. Please, don't accept what is being said. It's important, I think, one thing, that one must cultivate or have this sense of scepticism, especially in psychological matters. There must be doubt. And if you observe in the Asiatic world, India and so on, doubt has been one of the precepts in religion. The Hindus and the Buddhists have talked a great deal about doubt. But in the Christian world, doubt is denied because you are that world is based on faith. And if you question, you're either excommunicated or tortured, as, it is, as they have done in the past, burnt, now you're tolerated, there isn't much difference. So, please, observe yourself your environment, your society, and your own thoughts with considerable doubt. And also listen to the speaker with doubt, with question,
1: demanding
0: of yourself, you are doubting, all that you have thought, observed, learnt, so that a mind, the brain, is free to observe. But also, doubt must be kept on a leash, like a dog. If you keep a dog on the leash all the time, the poor animal withers, you must know when to let it go. Run. Chase. Jump. Similarly, one must hold doubt on in the ray on, on a leash. But also one must learn the subtlety when to let it go. So we are asking saying, why is it that man has lived in this disorder for millions and millions of years? Why we human beings, wherever we are, why? What's the cause of this disorder?
1: The third extract is from Krishnamurti's first talk in Ohio, 1981, titled To understand the crisis, we must be aware of thought So, to understand
0: the crisis in consciousness, in our very being, one must inquire very closely into the nature of thought, because that's the only instrument we have. We may invent intuition, a hunch, and so on, but it's still the basis of thought. Thought is the basis of all this. I wonder if one… one wonders if one recognizes this and sees what thought has done. Thought has created the world in which we live, the society in which we live. The society is an abstraction, Society is an abstraction. What is real is relationship between man and man. And the socialists, the communists, the democrats and so on are trying to change society, the social structure all over the world but they are never concerned with the relationship between man and man, man, woman, and so on, because that relationship makes society, which is again a fact. If your relationship with another is correct, true, has integrity, your society will then be what it, totally different. But that society, which is an abstraction, is being changed by machines, not by revolutions, by computers, by the atom bomb, by all the technological inventions that man thought has brought about. That is changing society, the structure. But human beings remain as they are, selfish, self-centred, completely concerned with their own dignity, with their own vanity, with their own ambition, with their own fulfilment, with their own desires. So in order to understand and bring about a radical change in the crisis or to respond to that crisis correctly, which means accurately, completely, one must inquire very deeply into the nature of thought. why thought has become so extraordinarily important in life and is there another instrument apart from thought we're going to going to be very careful without any superstition without any mystification without any Sense of acceptance, having faith, and all that nonsense. We are going to together examine what thought is, how it has created this terrible mess and problems, and so on. And we are going to inquire also together. If thought is not the instrument of the resolution of this crisis, is there another? Please, as you pointed out, we are exploring together. You are not listening to what the speaker is saying, merely accepting or agree, ex- Agreeing or then not, but joining together to find out. Because the speaker has no authority. He's not a guru, thank God. So there is no relationship which is so utterly false between the teacher and the talk. There is only the act of learning, not you teach me and I teach you, which becomes ridiculous, but rather that together, as two two human beings, think together, Which doesn't mean you agree with me or I agree with you, but together examine the nature of thought. Because by, by thought we live, by thought we destroy each other. So thought has become Astonishingly important in our life. Thought divides each one of us in our relationship, man and woman. I do not know if you have gone into it. How thought divides a relationship and so there is everlasting battle in that relationship. We'll go into all that. Perhaps not during this first talk, but they're going to be as there are going to be several, six talks, we'll go into all this. If you are interested. The speaker is not persuading you. Is not stimulating you. Is not acting as a drug. But together we see this, prob this crisis. And we must resolve this crisis or respond to this crisis properly, directly, sanely, rationally not according to our particular narrow belief or faith or some kind of idiotic concept. So we are asking, what is the nature of thought and why thought has become so devastatingly important? You might say, if if there is no thought, what I am reduced to a vegetable. Thought has its function. It has. And also, thought has brought about this terrible atom bomb that's going to destroy human beings. War. Thought has divided the world into nationalities, thought has divided the Christian from the Muslim, from the Hindu. Having divided, it it says we must love one another. having divided, says there is only one saviour who alone is responsible for your sorrow and all the rest of it. Thought is responsible for all this. And if we really do not sensitively be aware of the movement of thought and all its activity, then we shall not be able to meet this crisis and and if we cannot we are going to destroy each other. This is not a prophecy. You can see it on the wall, written on the wall. Unless we are totally blind, totally insensitive so absorbed in our own petty little self. It's all there for anyone can see, to see what is going to happen and what must be done. So, that is together, and I mean together, not I'm going to... The speaker is going to tell you, and you accept it. Then it becomes rather silly. But together find out why thought has become so supreme. And why thought, and what is the source of thought? What is the origin of thought? What is the beginning of thought? Ten minutes more.
1: <laughs>
0: time is an extraordinary thing <laughs> to understand time because time is also for. So if we understand the nature of thought, we shall understand the nature of time. And if there is an ending to thought, that is real meditation, there is an ending to time, not physical time, but where time must have a stop. And we are going to discover that for ourselves in all these talks. That is, if you care to listen, care to share, think over together, then we will find, discover it for ourselves and not be taught by another. If you are taught by another you become a second hand human being, which we are. We are what everybody has thought. From Aristotle, <coughs> the Greeks, from the ancient Hindus, from the ancient Buddhists, and so on and so on. All that is handed down and we are all that. So we are utterly mediocre people. There is nothing original. Not in the field of technology, of course there are inventions, and you identify with that invention and you think you are unique. But. Thought is common to all mankind – the black, brown, or whatever colour, <coughs> or nationality and so on – thought is common, and therefore there is a common bondage between all of us. And unless we understand the extraordinary… Subtlety of thought, with its memory, we should not be able to meet this crisis. So we'll go into it. Time will admit because I have stopped exactly an hour, five minutes. We are inquiring into the origin of thought. See in five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) But we can, and we will proceed. If we cannot do it completely this this morning, we'll do it tomorrow morning, and other times. Thought is born of experience. Thought is born out of that experience which becomes knowledge, stored up in the brain as memory, various types of memories – technological, personal, national, historical, and so on, scientific, Experience, listen, discover it for yourself as we talk. Experience, knowledge, from knowledge is memory, the remembering of past things. Then from memory, thought. Then from thought, there is action. And that action brings further knowledge. So we are caught in this. That is, thought, experience, which may be personal, global, knowledge which is global, from knowledge which is stored up in the brain as memory. Memory and respo- from that memory, respond response which is thought. Then thought acts this way or that way, rightly, wrongly, skillfully or with great subtlety. And from that, further knowledge. So, in this chain, human my brain works. He caught in this chain. This is a fact, if you observe it very closely. And that's why thought has become so extraordinarily important. And as it is born out of experience, knowledge, and as knowledge can never be complete, whole, at any time, so thought is always limited is always broken up, and whatever it touches must bring about division. division. Obvious. Right? So do we see the truth of that? that knowledge can never be complete. And and thought then must be incomplete, limited, fragmentary, and whatever it does, whether it creates the United Nations, or invents God, It must always be limited and therefore being incomplete it must bring about disharmony, conflict. If one realizes this completely, not as a theory and idea, but an actuality, then thought has its place. Because you cannot if you have no knowledge of where you are going after this meeting, it will be absurd. So knowledge has a place. But knowledge, psychological knowledge, which is the me, which has thought, which thought has put together the self and the self-centred activity, different from in the relationship with another, in that brings about conflict, confusion, misery. So, if one understands that very, very deeply, then one can begin to inquire, is there a (coughs) totally different kind of instrument that it is not fragmentary, that's whole.
1: The final extract in this episode is from the fifth talk in Bombay, 1964, titled, Facing a Crisis Inactively.
0: Most of us bring the past into the present and the present becomes mechanical. You observe your own life and you see how extraordinarily mechanical it is. You function like a machine, like a rather poor imitation of of an excellent electronic brain. And because you have allowed, accepted, you have got used to time. Now, there is a life out of time when you understand the past, the past being memory and nothing else. The memory as knowledge, accumulation of experiences, the thing that man has gathered for millennia, that's the past, conscious or unconscious. The traditions, all that is there and you come with that to the present, the now and therefore you are not living at all, you are living with memories, with the dead ashes of yesterday. Do watch yourself. So then out of that dead ashes of memory you invent the tomorrow. (coughs) I will be, I will be non-violent one day, I am violent today. But I will keep on polishing, polishing my lovely violence till I'm one day free of, and be non violent, which is so infantile, juvenile. And you have accepted it. You don't spit on that idea under the people who talk about such nonsense. You treat them as great people because. You are caught in time as they are caught in time. They are not liberating you, they are not making you face the fact of time, which is to bring the whole past into the present as a crisis. (laughs) Do you know what happens when you are in crisis? Actual crisis, not an invented crisis not crisis with words and ideas, theory, when you are actually confronted with with a crisis that demands your complete attention – complete attention being your mind, your eyes, your ears, your heart, your nerves, the whole of your being – you know what happens? Then there is no past, then there is nobody to tell you what to do. Then out of that tremendous attention comes spontaneity. Then you, in that state, there is no time. But the moment you begin to think about the crisis, think, goes. the Moment you begin to think, all oh, the past come into, comes into reaction. Our thought is the reaction of the past, of association and all the rest of it. And then you have the beginning of time and sorrow. Therefore a mind which is not in a state of action but in a state of inaction from which comes further inaction, which is of time. There are two kinds of inaction – the inaction that time breeds, and the inaction which is is total state of mind when they are confronted with a tremendous crisis – out of that Facing a tremendous crisis, there is no, there is the mind is so completely inactive, which is free from all thought, and out of that inaction there is action. That's the only action that counts, not the other. So. If one understands this extra- the nature of time and the meaning of time, understand I mean really has lived with it, one has lived with it, gone into it, not accepted any theory, any verbal explanation, and not escaping through the past. Goes into the, this phenomena of psychological time. As you go into it, you bring time into crisis. Then you're, that crisis makes you completely attentive. And therefore, the mind is in a state of action. is always acting because the mind then is free from that state of the past and the future which is time. And that state, when the mind is not concerned with the past or the future, the present has a totally different meaning, it is not a theory. It is not a, a state of despair. So the ending of sorrow is the ending of thought. And the ending of thought is the beginning of wisdom. Sorrow, the ending of sorrow is wisdom.